You know, um, there, there's this question that, that sometimes gets asked, if you could go back and do it again, what would you do different? If you could go back and be a teenager again, and with all of your wisdom now, everything you know, what would you do different? And I know what I would do different. Uh, first picture here, uh, I would get a different haircut. That's what I would do different. Uh, <laughs> I'm a nice brother. I blurred their faces. I was like, this is, this is the Sam shame hour, no one else. So that's me. Uh, if you're wondering who's the idiot in the Argyle, that's your pastor. Um, you know, it's funny. I had that haircut, and I, my, my girlfriend's dad would make fun of it, and I was like, my hair's not that bad. And then I got older, and I was like, oh, no, wait, Tony was right. That hair is bad. Um, I, you just go into a barber. Just throw out a number, four, the whole thing. Just take it all off. We're starting over. Um, so we have those things we do different. I know what I'd do different, different hair. Um, but have you ever thought about it in the opposite direction? We could take that down. It's just going to distract people. <laughs> go back to the first slide. Um, but have you thought what you would do if it went the other way around? If teenage you showed up in your life right now, had to administrate your life as it is right now with that teenage version and its, its thoughts, its perspectives, its discipline or lack thereof, having to administrate all of your life, its decisions, paying your bills, keeping your job, performing the upkeep on, upkeep on simple daily life, it would be a train wreck. Teenage you is no match for today's you. The things that you do today, because you've changed, you've learned patterns and skills that are needed for daily life. Life patterns, they're those things, those principles, Practices that we do that make life happen. Things that we learn, things that we change. We, uh, we get up early when we have a lot to get done. We don't stay in bed. Pattern learned. We learn to electively do things we don't want to do because we know the value in them, normally because we didn't do hard things before and they bit us really, really hard. We take on new things. These are those protocols, those little baby steps that mature us along the way, learning new patterns. With this, we're starting a new series talking about the, the patterns that Christ lived. Christ, too, lived in certain patterns, protocols, ways of taking care of things and addressing things, things that develop spiritual maturity. It's so important that if we're going to do this Christian thing, that we do the main event, which is to copy Christ, to be like him. Paul defined spiritual maturity. You almost could say spiritual enlightenment. Maturity is a much better word, though. Spiritual maturity being, being conformed to the image of Christ, meaning that you would be like Jesus. You would watch him and become like him. So we're going to focus on uh, four different patterns that he had over his life over the next few weeks. And today we're going to look at his pattern of solitude. You see, sometimes when we think of Jesus, we, we can almost get so caught up in the, that he is God that we lose some of the picture of what uniquely makes the Messiah the Messiah. That he is God, but Jesus didn't come to walk the earth to be God on earth. He walked the earth that through his incorruptible nature that he had because he was divine would make him the perfect human being. His calling is to be the perfect human being. The Messiah is not a God office, it's a human office that God through his incorruptible nature earned and took when he became completely and fully human. 
Humanity is meant to reign over all of creation, and it's a call that we've fallen from, but because Christ has made it happen, because we have finally had one human rise up from among us that could do it, he's redeemed all of us with him. We needed a human savior, and so he, he exemplifies to the highest degree the perfect image of humanity. When we look at Christ, we see humanity as humanity was supposed to be. Or as John wrote, he was the light of all mankind. And this is heavily related to the concept of the champion warrior. This was a, a thing that happened. Two armies would face off, and they didn't want to, everybody have to die, so they would pick a champion. This is the story of David. The Philistines pick their champion. It's going to be Goliath. Israel can't find theirs. David rises up in faith. And when David wins, it's a victory for the whole army because he is Jewish, because he is uh, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. That's why when he wins, the question is, who is he? Where is he from? What tribe is he from? Is the victory legal? And so we see this concept of a champion coming out for us, doing it right, and then we get the victory. That's the central aspect of the gospel, that Jesus is the perfect man, both entirely God and entirely man. This is the story of the Messiah. He, he studied, he submitted, he grew up as a person earning things that he had a right to just simply have so that in all ways he could be like us, learning at school and learning trades, things that he could have simply just chosen to be able to do through his godly power, he chose to do it as us. And he even faced temptation. He faced testing, and yet he never sinned. And that's the story we're going to read today. The context of this is that Jesus has just been baptized. He has been just declared from this powerful voice in heaven, this is my son whom I'm, with whom I'm well pleased. He has just been essentially revealed as the Messiah to those who are at his baptism in the Jordan. And his ministry is about to begin. He is 33 years old. I meaning I am about one year older than him. Well, now I'll be two soon, because I'll be 35 soon, and I will be an old man. I'm sorry for that. Um, I know, I know. Um, but he is, uh, he's 33, he's been waiting his whole life for this, and now it begins, and his first step, as it says in uh, Matthew 1, is this. Uh, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Goes into this moment of solitude, a place of empty desolation. Wilderness is a term that's used uh, specifically to refer to a place that nobody's at. It's an isolated place. It's often seen as evil or dangerous outside the bounds of safety. And this is where he goes. Now, solitude is important to understand. Solitude is not the same as rest. It's not the same as Sabbath. It's not the same as getting a break. This is about going somewhere to be tested and refined, to be refined down. Every calling ahead of us has a testing of, the per of us and our character that every human must go through. God will test us for the calling that's ahead. We see stories like this before, David's anointed king, uh, oil's poured on his head. He said, you will be king one day. And what does he do? He goes back out and does what he was doing before. He keeps his father's sheep, again, for years, out there by himself. And in that testing and refining, character is built in him. 
Paul, at his conversion, he, he, he's going to persecute the church. He gets saved. Scales fall from his eyes. Massive transformation. And he runs off to Arabia for years to just study Scripture and to be alone, to be tested. Before living out a call, we must be tested. And testing is important. Testing is not God doing research on you. God knows the content of your character. He knows what is there. Testing means to refine, to refine, to boil up what's within you and to remove the dross. The dross is they'll have these uh, molten steel is, is when it's uh, burned, the silver and whatnot, the dross, the bad impurities of the steel come to the top and turn hard and it gets scraped off. It's God's moment to draw off what's on us before we live out the call. Now, this is, loving, this is loving protection because you can fall two ways. You can fall one way by saying, I will never say yes to God, or you can say yes and then make it all about yourself and forsake God. And so there's this, there's this important thing that if you're going to do God's will, never lose God. Never let your pride outrun your heart for God. Never forget that the Christian me- message is understand best by children because they simply get the idea, God loves me and I love him back. That the, that the most simple things are what matters. And in this moment, God's going to remove impurities from a person's life. God is not the tempter, but he is the refiner. He's not tempting anything, but he will refine what is in there. Christ it turns out to be uh, Perfect. And that is the, that's what this will eventually come to. But you see, God is not the one who is bringing evil on him and bringing the test, bringing the hardship. The fact is, is that oftentimes with us, it's also true, or it's always true. God is not the evil in our life that we are being tested through. We live in a very broken and forsaken world that is, that's full of pain. We forget that free will makes it to where people can make bad decisions that hurt innocent people. And we'll say things like, how could God allow evil to happen in this world? And it's because this world has been given to us in our free will. The burden of human freedom is extreme. Because the decisions we make, it's not like it's only going to hurt the guilty. It will hurt the innocent. And so we live in a place where hardship comes and, and difficult moments come. But God is too good to let the difficult times that come upon us not produce something great that the great moments produce something great, and from your worst, God can remove character flaws and problems from us that make us whole. And these moments can be incredibly life-giving. Testing is critical, and it's not uh, an exam that you pass or fail. It is a moment of refinement when God draws out from me what's there that you could handle the burden of what's ahead. Testing, then, is a quality, a human hurdle to find out what is the quality of the one who's gonna, who is going to serve. And our Savior, because he's going to live a life as a complete human, is subjected to the same sort of testing, refining the heat, the difficulty of it. But he is found flawless. But in our times of testing, uh, we find there's always things to be removed. There's always something that comes up. Verse 3, uh, it says, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This is very interesting because a uh, quick uh, personal exam, you can answer this in your own mind. Did Jesus ever make bread happen miraculously? He does. 
That's actually part of his destiny, part of his calling. That one of the miracles that really showed the values of the kingdom of heaven was this multiplying of bread that was miraculous. He will do that someday. But this isn't the time, this isn't the place. This testing comes down to motivation. And honestly, I find that most testing times and refinement for a calling that's ahead of us, it is overwhelmingly about what motivates you for it. What is your motivation? What is God drawing out in that area? And this is certainly true of the saints we see in the Bible. Moses, for instance, shows considerable signs that he has a passion to, uh, to bring justice, to bring justice against the Egyptians and to deliver his people, to give them a law well before he gets the official calling from God in the burning bush. One of the first stories we hear about him after he's saved and raised in the house of Pharaoh is he's out one day and he sees an Egyptian brutally beating a Hebrew. And then he follows the Egyptian, looks to his left, looks to his right, feels no one's watching, and murders the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And as it turns out, there were Hebrews that did see what happened. A few days later, he's walking among the Hebrews again. He sees two of them in a fist fight, and he separates them. He says, brothers, why do you strike each other? And one of them gets angry at Moses and says, what, are you going to kill us too, just like the Egyptian? And that's the entire reason why Moses left Egypt. He was terrified. He thought, they know about the murder, and he fled. And this is, a, this is an amazing development because it is a critical moral failure. This is Moses, the greatest bringer of law and order in human history, begins uh, his whole story becoming a murderer, committing murder by his own law that the Lord inspired him, that he was the co-author of his Lord, spoke it and he wrote it down. By that law, he broke it, a serious commandment. It is not just to kill someone just because of an altercation they had with somebody else. The next thing in his story is really similar, isn't it? He goes into the wilderness. He goes into the wild, and in that place, in that place of testing and refinement, coming against his failures, he has an encounter with God that draws something out of him. And Moses realizes something as God speaks to him. Everything, the architecture of the calling that gave him that passion, it wasn't about him. It was the, the, what had to be refined in Moses was his motivation. He was not the liberator of Israel. He was not the bringer of law. He wasn't going to do it by his own power. He was going to wait for God's timing and be a vessel for God's plan. That he would go when he spoke to Pharaoh, he would not speak his words. He would speak what God told him before. God said, go to Pharaoh and say this, and that was what was communicated to Pharaoh. He said, throw down your staff. He threw down his staff. Open the stream, open the stream. Every time Moses did something, he did it because it was God doing it. I really do believe that there is a massive temptation for anyone called to do stuff for God to make it about themselves. That I, I feel called to do this thing or run this group or, or to go speak to that person, and we start to think about these trophies that will build up for us, or what we'll do by our own strength, our own charisma, our own power, our own smarts. And the refining time is a time to face enough failure and setback that you will gladly take God as your partner, as your leader, and as the one to whom all the glory goes. He learns a very critical thing, Moses, at this point in his life, that what was in his heart to do will be done by the leadership and empowerment of God, being submitted to God is everything. It is absolutely everything. And as we see Moses fail in that, we watch Jesus succeed. Isn't that the story of the Messiah? Where mankind fails, he succeeds and leads us forward. So Jesus answers, 
when he's tempted. Do it ahead of time. If you're so powerful, you can transfigure this into bread. Do it. But it's not the time, and it's not his to do. So Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a, this is a, shows a true command that Jesus had learned and understood about Scripture. That is perfectly in context. That what he's quoting from Deuteronomy, he's quoting Deuteronomy there, man shall not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. It comes from Deuteronomy, and it's Moses repeating to the people and teaching them about how they failed in their hunger. That they hungered and they wanted meat, they wanted more bread, they complained, and in their grumbling, they created a false god, and they tried to do things by their own power, their own strength. This chosen people wanted to be a chosen people that ran the show, and they were set back, and Moses reminds them, don't forget, It's not about the pain in your stomach. You don't live on bread alone. What's really critical to you is that you receive from God what God is speaking to you. It's an amazing thing. There's so much about this particular temptation that that foreshadows them. Not foreshadows, post-shadows them might be a better way to say it. They're starving in the desert for 40 years. He goes and fasts for 40 days. Our Messiah is reliving and having victory over something that Israel failed in to redeem them. They sin for food, yet Jesus quotes the perfect passage, and this is Moses' teaching on hunger and what drove the people to sin. The important thing to see is that as, just as in submission, wanting to do things by your own power is something that gets refined from us as Jesus is melted down and boiled in this time of testing. No dross comes to the surface, and what we find in him is that he's incredibly submitted. Don't forget that Scripture clearly says the miracles Jesus did, he did not do by his own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. The Holy Spirit did it. Every miracle that came out of him, it was done as a human minister with God doing the work. It was not time for Jesus to flex his muscles and to do what he wanted. God was the one that was going to transfigure bread someday, and he was submitted to that. So how much more is this true for us? If Jesus is not the agent of his calling, neither are we. And just like Moses, Jesus had a passion to lead, teach, liberate. He wanted to do these things. He saw injustice every day. He saw saw bad shepherds every day, the things that he would want to go out and, and to confront. And yet he waited and was patient for the Father's timing. What a lesson he learned. How much we can see from our from our Lord what to do. He is going to do a lot of the things that he's, he's tempted to do in these temptings. Our reading will stop there today, but the tempting goes on to several others. We know from our reading today, he will actually miraculously produce bread for your hungry stomachs. Later in the temptations, he's taken to the temple and he's told, if you are the son of God, throw yourself from the top because it says that God won't let your feet strike the ground. And there will come a time that Jesus will rise him up again right there next to the holy city, brought back to life. God will raise him back from the death and his resurrection and not let him decay in the ground. But it's not time yet, and it's not up to Jesus to make it happen. Later in the story, it says that he is brought to a high place, and the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, I will hand them all to you, and they will bow down to you if you bow down to me and worship me. And the fact is, as we know from Revelation, that is the destiny of Jesus as well, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That will happen. But how does it happen? It says that the Father says, come and sit down at my side. 
and I will make the earth your footstool. That it is God who will do this on behalf of the Son to make it happen. If this is how Jesus chooses to operate, though he is divine, though he is the Son of God, though he has the power to, it really tells us something about us. This is the perfect man. We do not do things by our own power, by our own excellence. No one does that. We do so on the word of God and by just simply following him. This is the great thing that's tested and refined out of him in this moment. It is not enough to want what God wants for you. You must want it the way God wants to give it to you. You must want it in the timing that he has. And you're going to have to become very comfortable with God getting all the glory. Before the time comes, those passions and dreams are inside of us. I wouldn't be surprised if many of the daydreams that, are, that we have in this room, the dreams we have of our future, are echoing from this deep architecture within you of something God will ignite one day. When the time comes, when, when it's ready for it, the kind of things that are within you, God has a way of working within it, a reason that it's in you. And the main temptation for us all is to take matters into our own hands, to make it happen, to grow anxious when we see everybody else getting out there and making it happen. It says that when Jesus was a boy, there was another man who was also named Jesus, who claimed to be a Messiah, led a whole bunch of Jews in rebellion, and they all got killed by Jerusalem, or they all got killed by Rome. He's watching these motions, these people vying for power, trying to take over, and yet because he had incorruptible nature, he didn't fear. He trusted one day the Father will tell me that it's time. One day the Lord will tell me what to speak, and I will follow my Father in everything that I do. And one day I will be with him and I'll sit at his side and he'll make the earth my footstool. These things are inside of you and we can grow so anxious and we can grow so impatient, not wanting to wait in God's time, but to just do it in our own time, in our own way, fast, now. There's something that's so sick inside of us that we want to fulfill the calling of God as if we're gonna do a crusade in his name and not a pilgrimage at his side. And sometimes God walks really, really slow. You ever walked with a kid that finds a rock? And you're like, thank God it's over. That lasted five minutes. For like 10 feet, they find another rock. And you look ahead and you're like, oh my word, there's nothing but rocks between here and home. God's a little bit like my six-year-old. <laughs> he moves at his pace. And we are on a pilgrimage with him. Doing things in his name, it's not enough. Doing things under his leading, now that's what matters. So opportunities present themselves. As in with Jesus' case, an opportunity presents itself. Son, it's time to get moving. The first thing he does is he goes into solitude, goes into a place to be refined. And it's not because it was some slap on the wrist, only the naughty people have to go to refinement. The perfect one did. If he has to do it, we all have to do it. If you feel there's something that, you're, that you feel called to do, that you are feeling something's going on or something you want to happen, there's a pattern for it, solitude. Going away, going away where God is that you could be refined and things can be moved within you. When the time comes, do you seek solitude? That you could be sifted? That God could pull things out, have permission to be in there and to give guidance? Because there is a vast difference between things feeling right and things being right sometimes. You can have the passion, the availability, the skill to do something, but it may still be the wrong call. That is why you need to make a new rhythm that before you go, 
before you act, you go into solitude and open an honest prayer. You know, we're seeing uh, a fast transition. Jay Jason is going on a fast transition, but talking to him and being his friend, this is something that there has been a lot of solitude, testing and refinement, and being in a lot of uncomfortable waiting. Jason's, Jason's a high energy guy to be ready for the moment. And it's a, it's a rhythm that comes from maturity. It's a pattern that comes from being with Jesus. And I'll tell you, in our time of, of testing and refinement, we don't come up drossless. That's, well, there's only one guy that ever came up with nothing to correct. But it is important that we get corrected because there's a certain weight that sets down on us when we're doing God's will that if there is something bad in the architecture, you snap. There's every time that you see a, a, a minister, a leader, someone who thought they could do something and they break down themselves, moral failures uh, in uh, ways they hurt people, there is a time of testing and solitude that person skipped. There was a level of open and honest prayer that wasn't had. So make a new rhythm, make a new pattern. Before you act, go into solitude and have open and honest prayer. It's not even just the big stuff. It's not just you happen to be the Messiah and now it's time to liberate the world. It can be little things. The decisions you're about to make, all the ways we think about all the pros and cons, was there a long, prolonged, uncomfortably long? Honestly, if it felt like it wasn't uncomfortably long, you might not have been there long enough. Time of waiting on God, listening, being refined, because the answer may still be yes. Yes, I did put that on you. Yes, I do want you to do it. But you got to be ready before you go. You have to be ready before you go. I'll tell you what I think one of the biggest problems we have, beyond the fact that we're proud and we want to, uh, we misunderstand this idea that we're supposed to impress God and not just enjoy his presence and do it with him and his strength. The tyranny of worry and hurry is a big problem that we worry that someone else is going to take it if we don't move now. In the hurry of it, life is so fast, it goes so quickly, we feel we need to make a decision immediately. Something inside of you says, yeah, you're being lazy, you're putting it off when you're in a moment of waiting, but it is so critical. We must slow down, we must do it right. The pattern feels a lot like slowing down and being quiet because it is. It may not be the same as recuperation and rest because solitude is the time uh, not to recharge your batteries, but to set your heart before it acts, to let God refine and purify. It's so important that we learn this pattern. We be people that can slow down, go to solitude, go to a place of, of quiet, go to a place where the Lord can sift and, and change and move in our heart before we move on. This is the most critical part of your decision-making in life. Of all the wisdom and all the things you get, one of the biggest ones is that at some point, God gave you the red light or the green light. That is the most important thing to get. And it was important to someone who was divine, had incorruptible nature. He did it too, and we're called to do it. And he did it right. And because he's one of us, he can lead us through right. He is our forerunner, our forebearer. Christ goes with you. The Holy Spirit refines you and you can be protected and prepared for the things God has for you. I want to pray for us this morning, Lord. God, I feel that, um, that there are several people in here today this message was for, the burdens that were laid on the heart. And God, I feel like there is, there is guilt and there's shame. Something inside says, I should already be producing. I should already be out there. Lord, I pray that you would remind them 
that someone who could have turned the world on its head preaching from the time he was an infant waited till he was a grown man. That you were comfortable with waiting, Lord, let us be comfortable with waiting. Your timing is perfect timing. So God, I pray for just a discernment of the moment. We've been telling ourselves we're at a standstill. We're not. We are in solitude. We're in a time of testing. We're in a time of refinement. We're in a time of spiritual surgery to remove things from within us that don't need to be there. Things that have to go, things we could be more prepared for what's ahead of us. Lord, I pray for a blessing in the solitude, in the silence, and in the waiting. God, I pray that you would release the chains of guilt that we could just be quiet before you. God, I pray for the dross to be taken off. God, I pray that it would be such a liberating thing to confront the issues so deep within us and our motivations. Why do I want to do it? We'd feel a healing and an energy and a power to do so that we'd be all the more motivated, God, and this wouldn't be a thing we did once, but it would be like the son for whom it was a pattern that before he went on his ministry, he went into solitude. Before he went to the cross, he went into solitude and he was always refined and tested in you. Let us also be refined and proven to be something great. God, I pray for a wonderful purity and our motives and who we are, that nobody get hurt as we do your ministry, that life-giving love would dispense out of us, that good things would come from our decisions because you made us ready for it first. Call us into solitude and give us confidence to go there and to be with you that your loving hands could reach in and remove from us that which hurts us and hurts others. We thank you, Lord. Amen.